Welcome back to the Bros Bookshelf Podcast as we continue our discussion on Tanahasi Coates' Water Dancer, Part Two. I wanted to say this. His spidey, his spidey senses went up when Corinne was talking to him about the loss of his brother. And she was getting too emotional. Well, hold on. Go back. Go back. Who is Corinne? Make sure we know who Corinne is. I know she, I know okay. who she is, but Co- who is Corinne? Corinne was Why a single matter? woman. She had acquired a lot of wealth. And was she was she? staged to marry Maynard. To give Maynard the the social status that he was looking for, so he was she was in the family because she she had her own money. She was by herself. She inherited a lot of wealth. She didn't have any living family members. So, but she found herself being a woman, which was something else that was a theme in this book. And they also talk about suffrage because she was a woman. She could not do anything with her wealth because women could not do business. So she needed a husband and Maynard needed a wife. Right. And she needed a husband because they thought that a woman would blow their inheritance and they needed they needed direction from a man. White men. Boy, they out they gonna put themselves at the top. <laughs> but so to answer your question, Harvey, Corinne Quinn is a white woman. A well-connected white woman, but more importantly, she's a secret agent for the Underground Railroad. Hiram, being as smart as he is, drew some type of suspicion when Corinne asked him about his brother Maynard. Because it's designed for the quality to not be concerned about the personal feelings of the task. So I want to read the passage that speaks to that. It says... And it was not just the tenor of her voice, but the very nature of her address that felt unusual. It is hard to convey this now, for it was another time replete with its own rituals, choreography, manners among the class and subclass of quality. Tasked and low. There were things you said and did not, and what you did marked your place in the rankings. The quality, for instance, did not inquire on the inner workings of their people. They knew our names and they knew our parents, but they didn't know us because not knowing was essential to their power. To sell a child right from under his mother, you must know that mother only in the thinnest way possible. To strip a man down, condemn him to be beaten, filleted alive, then anointed with salt water, you cannot feel him the way you feel your own. You cannot see yourself in him, lest your hand be stayed, and your hand must never be stayed. Because the moment it is, the task will see that you see them, and thus see yourself. In that moment of profound understanding, you're all done, because you cannot rule as needed. So basically, it's just like today. When they're about to railroad somebody, let's say when the police shoot somebody uh, unarmed, they try to dehumanize you first so it could be palatable for them to get away and make you 
But that's afterwards. Disposable. That's the afterthought. The beforehand is to not see you as human in the beginning. But it's the same tactic in reverse. In reverse, but the act has already been done. So you dehumanize from the beginning by your idea. Well, and you, that started well, with uh, you birth of a nation. The, you dehumanize in the beginning because there was no laws against it. And it just, those, that was there for your own uh, emotions and your own humanity. Right. right. So it's done from the beginning to the end. So um, that's what Birth of a Nation was for. It was to propaganda, propaganda to make white people see Negroes as lazy, violent, rapist. And that way, when you see one, it's not hard for you to shoot them because you felt like you were in danger just from seeing a colored person. Ain't no humans involved. Exactly. And so that's where we are today because we're still dealing with the same propaganda. Um, you see that on the news and we are dealing with it in the things that we see and that we read. You can no longer ensure that the tobacco heel locks are raised to your expectation, that the slips are fed into those heel locks at the precise time, that the plants are weeded and hold with diligence, that your harvest is top and the seeds is filled and saved, that the leaves are left on the stalk, and the stalk is spiked and hung at the proper distance, so that the plant neither molds nor dries out, but cures into that Virginia gold, which moves the base and more man into the pantheon of quality. Every step is essential and must be followed with the utmost care. And there is but one way to ensure that a man takes this care with a process that rewards him nothing. And that way is torture, murder, and maiming. Is child theft. Is terror. So to hear Korean dress me in this way, to attempt to draw some bond, was bizarre and then terrifying because I was certain that the attempt itself conceals some darker aim and I could not see her face and thus could not look for any sign that may betray this aim. I know, she said, I know. And recalling the story Hawkins told, the truth of what had happened, I wondered then what precisely she knew. So at that moment, Hiram knew something wasn't right but Hiram didn't know what was up. And that was a part of Robert's frustration when he was like, we can't ever have anything pure, Robert said. It's always out of sorts. Them stories with their knights and maids, none of that's for us. We don't get it pure. We don't get nothing clean. Yeah, I said, but neither do they. It's quite a thing. A messy, dirty thing to put your own son, your own daughter to the task. Way I see it, ain't no pure. And it is we who are blessed, for we know this. Blessed, huh? Blessed, for we do not bear the weight of pretending pure. I would say that it has taken some time for me to get that. Had to lose some folks and truly understand what that loss mean. But having been down and... Having seen my share of those who are up, I tell you, Robert Ross, I will live down here among my losses, among the muck and mess of it, before I would 
ever live among those who are in their own kind of muck, but are so blind by it that they fancy it pure. Ain't no pure, Robert. Ain't no clean. And that's what we talked about earlier. And that was the whole point of I'd rather be black than anything else. Because at this point, I know who I am and what I am. You are just pretending to be something. I remember, man, when I went to grad school, this is my first time, you know, dealing with white folks. And I've, I've seen black people do it. Like black people who grew up, they didn't grow up around white people, but like it was their business to show white people that they were different or okay or whatever. Anyway, I just remember being in school and we were talking about stories and what our parents told us about other people. These are activities white people do to try to, you know, self-reflection and stuff. And when I said in class, my folks always said that white people are crazy. Oh my gosh. That shit tore that classroom up, man. My professor looks at me like, what do you mean crazy, Harvey? I'm like, what do you mean what I mean crazy? All the crazy stuff white people do? So it's this idea that, you know, black people have always had internal feelings towards them saying, I- I- I'd rather be myself because y'all are crazy. I can't believe you did that, but okay. Because I'm sure your parents, when they told you that, said, don't go and tell them to their face that they're crazy. I told them, I told them, like, like yeah, I told them. That's the, yeah, welcome to Purdue. Okay. <laughs> well, in this particular instance, we're not going to do that. That is not what we're going to do. I, I feel like we I'm need to take a commercial line. break. I'm running for office, Harvey. You can't say that out loud. (laughs) Right. Okay, so with Hiram and Sophia, that was toward, I think, from, from the time that he was taken, his mind was consumed with her for the most part he couldn't do anything you know he didn't want to talk to people he was mean to the people who were nice to him or he was silent and remember he almost gave up he decided that he was going to walk around and he was going to just give up he didn't care at that point he didn't even know where he was going to go and what happened he got kidnapped by Ryland Towns. And who saved Hiram? Harriet Tubman. No. She she was there. But that's not who saved him. Who saved him? We can stop calling him Mr. Fields because at this point he is, is Makaja yeah. Bland. He's Makaja Bland. And it's all a setup once again. It was it wasn't yeah, we, a setup. Harriet Tubman, I, I thought Harriet was with them. Because you remember they was trying to track them down. I thought she was where they returned him to. But Makaja was the one who shot because that was another time that I was upset with Hiram. I got upset with Hiram quite a bit and I got upset with Sophia quite a bit. Hiram kind of had the nerve to say that Makaja Bland murdered the people who had kidnapped him. And he was like, murdered? I just saved your life. Right. And he was kind of being very self-righteous about that. And I he did eventually come around. But because this all this was new to Hiram. Right. All, all this whole this whole 
this underground, we are at war with the system. We are at war with all the participants. Hiram didn't see it that way. They had to sell it to him. That's true. But at the same time and by the same token, am I going to be upset with you if you shoot the people who have me blindfolded and are about to kill me? Stockholm. I hope not, babe. I, yeah. hope, I hope I get rewarded. Okay. Anyway. You killed them. Yeah, I just wanted to... Um, I know I'm jumping around, but I did like how Coates wrote in the book when he was talking about Korean's motivation for being a, a abolitionist and participating in the Underground Railroad. Hiram said... Korean Quinn was among the most fanatical agents I've ever encountered on the underground. All these fanatics were white. They took slavery as a personal insult or affront, a stain upon their name. They had seen women carried off to fancy or watched as a father was stripped and beaten in front of his child or seen whole families pinned like hogs onto rail cars, steamboats, and jails. Slavery humiliated them because it offended a basic sense of goodness that they believed themselves to possess. And when their cousins perpetuated the base practice, it served to remind them how easily they might do the same. They scorned their barbaric brethren, but they were brethren all the same. So their opposition was a kind of vanity, a Hatred of slavery that far outranked any love of the slave. Korean was no different. White, which is why Hiram could so. not take to her as well. But I think that with, with all of that and all of that layering, I think many people recognize that with Korean, that, that dealt with Korean in this instance. And that's the same thing that we say all the time. We credit a lot of the civil rights movement and we should and credit a lot of white people for the Black Lives Matter movement because they actually are the ones who can enact change because they are the ones who are dealing with their peers when it comes to that. We, the Freedom Riders were very important to the civil rights movement. They were mostly white people. So even with that, though, they cannot feel what we felt because it was not happening to them. So Corinne did not have the same emotion that Hiram and Harriet and Otha, you know, they had a different feel for a it. deeper feeling. Much deeper. Cast the difference between your children and your stepchildren feeling. That's a very bad example. Okay. <laughs> it's, very bad. it's the difference between oh, your children and your neighbor's children. Okay. It's the difference between your neighbor's children and your children. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not just <laughs> children. I love them like my own. Something else that jumped out to me. He was talking about Baltimore. Did you pick up on that, uh, Harvey and Donovan? Yeah, um, what part? I mean, yeah, it was when Baltimore. he went to Baltimore, the black people in Baltimore had as much money or oh, yeah. more money than the white people in Baltimore. They was they was balling. He said some of them. He talked about the class levels and the black people and the class levels and the white people. Did y'all know a little fact that it was in the DMV area, the Baltimore, Maryland area, 
where the term white trash was coined. No. And it was coined by the elite black people. He described it. <laughs> he, he described the scene. Yeah. No, so I thought that, and I also thought that it was almost liberating to him and very different. You just messed me up. I I I would always say that black people can't be racist because they can't they don't have the power to define the reality to oppress white people. And you just told me black people invented the term white trash. Yeah, but so that doesn't keep white people from buying houses. It doesn't keep white people from so once Killing again, people. black people can't be racist. <laughs> yeah. We can be prejudiced, but racism yeah, because it's, some type yeah, of Like you said, it's not enacting life. anything. I mean, it's yeah. just a word. It's I'm just calling you a any, no red line, gerrymandering, nothing happens. It's a difference between bigotry and racism. Yeah, It's a difference between prejudice and racism. It's two total big different things. Well, where'd the word cracker come from? Something? Yeah, oh, uh, the rip of the cracker. Oh no! Mm-hmm. That's yeah, so that's funny, what I, man. That I is so out. funny. Mm. Yeah, the whip, <laughs> the crackers, the one that used to beat the people. The I'm crackers. I'm going to look that up. Okay. Yeah. Don't try me. Anyway, um, it was another girl. You better stop. Hey, it was another thing when he went to um when he went to Philadelphia and he saw all these black people walking around freely. And they were a lot of intelligent black people in, in upper class, and they were working for the movement. The um, one of the stories, uh, oh yeah, I mean, it wasn't wild, it was the thing. And it, I want to circle back, though. One of the stories in Philly was the story of the girl Mary Bronson on the train, and she had slipped him a note, and she was like, I need help. I'm, I'm being trafficked. And they went on that train and they went and got her out. They was like, look, she's not, she don't want to be with you. You're holding her captive. And that, that man stood up and was like, how dare you? You're going to take her, uh, you're going to take her away from me. And he was, he was thrown back because they were in that, they was enforcing the law and they made, you know what? I just thought about something. And we said this in that, in that book, um, from hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. During that time, there were no police, and the people enacted the law, and they enforced the law. Yeah. Because they were up there enforcing the law. Yeah. They they enforced the law. They got her free. Yeah. They read the law to that man. They said, look, this is up north. That shit that you pulled down south yeah. is not legal up here. She's yeah. free. She's coming with us. You're going by yourself. I mean, the that gall of these thing. dudes to, to to take their slaves into these areas where they know slavery is outlaw, and they're gonna act like we're gonna we're gonna go here and act like we're not. <laughs> we're gonna you're gonna go here and act like you're not my slave, but you better not look, and I'm gonna hold you in arm the whole time tight. You know what I mean? That's just just that's just bananas, man. The fact that they they believed their power was that strong, and and in many ways they had arms to exercise it because they were still snatching folks up up yeah. out of there. I mean, the whole Fugitive Slave Act kind of reinforces that idea. Like, yeah, you made it to a free state, but 
yeah, we're going to know states' rights in this case. You need to go back down south and become a slave again. Like, that's... Yeah, because there's a lot of cotton to be picked, and there's a labor shortage, so we need all hands on deck. Thus, 12 years a slave. When he was in uh, Philadelphia, he said, I had by then done my share of reading on Philadelphia. So I knew that in another time when the task was here in Philadelphia, the city had fallen victim to a wave of fever. And among the men who combated this fever was Benjamin Rush, a famous doctor, which is hard to countenance given the theory he put forth in defense of the city. Color people were immune to the fever, he told Philadelphia. And more than immune, their very presence could alter the air itself. Sucking up the scourge and holding it captive in our own we're, fitted we're black filters. bodies. Just bring us around. We're, we're soaking the disease. <laughs> <laughs> right. With our big nigga nose <laughs> sucking up all the white man's air. <laughs> anyway. And so tasking men were brought in by the hundreds on the alleged black magic of our bodies. They all died. And when the city began to fill with their corpses... Its masters searched for a place far from the whites who were failed by the disease. And they chose a patch of land where no one lived and tossed us into the pits. Years later, after the fever had been forgotten, after the war had birthed this new country, they built rows and rows of well-appointed houses right on top of those people and named a square for the liberating general. It struck me that even here in the free North, the luxuries of this world were built right on top of us. And the fact that the wealthy neighborhood of Washington Square is literally built on the bodies of dead enslaved people is almost too neat of a metaphor. But yet the reality is that it's not even a literary invention but a true part of Philadelphia's history. Oh, it's the it's the very real deal. It's it's so much real that you can go to places like Philadelphia. You can go to places like Washington D.C. You can go to places like New York. You can go to all the major cities and see fuckery or where they built something on top of black people, and it's just a monument. It's just a placard. You can know what happened very well, and it don't change a damn thing. You don't always even get a placard or some you type of... You have to pay to even learn it sometimes. Yeah. Like, people who run it through Central Park don't know that that was Seneca Village in general. So, no, it's not... Right. It's, 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 it's fiction, but it's real. <laughs> yeah. In the end, Harold Walker, once Hiram came back to the plantation to get some more information to free... Um, Sophia and Fina. First of all, before I go there, I want to talk about the deep trauma Fina had buried deep down inside of her. And she did that to move on. And when Hiram opened up that wound, she was extremely upset with him. He thought that she was going to be jubilated to see her daughter and to hear that her daughter was still alive. And she was like, why did you do this to me? Well, that's a very good example for all things, even right now, because that's what women do. We take that pain and we bury it somewhere. And then here y'all come with something else that y'all didn't even understand, <laughs> that you didn't even know that you shouldn't bring up. And guess what happened? 
We bring it up. Teresa, this is what I talk about. And y'all are very upset because it opened up something that you had locked deep down inside. Exactly. You know what? That's like yesterday in Stay With Me. When she when she locked, when they said that she locked the thoughts of her children in the coffins mm-hmm. of her heart. Women be hiding stuff or locking stuff up. Yes, because up. you have to to Don't move you. on. You all wallow in stuff forever. My sinuses, my bronchitis, my I can't breathe. Oh, all of that. And we just have to say, okay. I don't feel well today, but I got to go cook. I got to go clean this up. I got to go pick these kids up. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. Nobody has time for that. I think, I think it's who? a misinterpretation. But why can't you, it's not, it's not that. It's not that, Teresa. We just don't hold that shit. We let that shit go. When nobody we, wants we to hear that. We don't care. Right. We so don't you care. dump it on somebody else, no. and that's something else that women have to lock up get out and the way. put it away. Get out the way. You, How do get you, dumped get, on. you can't get out the way when yeah, somebody's you calling you on you, touching you, and hey, 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 hey. All of that. So women have to lock this stuff away. Fina did it. Sophia did it. She just interpreted it and she turned around and she was just letting people have it with it. Fina was letting people Her name have Fina. it. I, I know. Fina? I, I said Fina because you said Fina the last time. But um, I said Fina. No, you didn't. You said Fina. But hey, it's okay because I'm going to lock that up and put it away as well. <laughs> Fina was, she was able to silently be that rock. Sophia was younger, which is another, you know, thing that but you can look at and say, Sophia. wow, this could be today. With her being younger, she inter- she was letting it go. And she was giving Hiram the business. Every time he turned around and said something, she had something quick to say. But she was also a little bit more edgier than Hiram, a little bit more worldly than Hiram. She was. She had come from somewhere else, but she still had all of these things inside of her that she knew that she wanted. And she also knew what she did not want. Hold on. Though, hold on. It's 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 it's. It's the part of these women, even in Yeji Day, we're still talking about losing children, though, right? And we're talking about, in, in a thingless case, children being snatched away from her. And so that was, that's something that Hiram can't understand. He missed that. And so he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have known what that was to feel like when he told her that her daughter was still alive. He should have known. Because yeah, he's, he been, he's been on the reverse of that. And he was snatched away from his mother. And, so, and it was so traumatic for him. His, that his he mother blo- was snatched away from him. It goes both ways. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Because his father, the, the, the mother was in the jail. He came and got the son and took the son away. That's snatched away from your mother. And the mother gave him a necklace as he was taken away from her. She was left in the jail. Which is a great transition to where I was getting to. When he discovered that shell necklace in in that secretary at his office. The one that he had built. The one that he had built. He 
went and spoke to his daddy and he had the necklace on and he purposely let the necklace fall out of his shirt so his daddy could see it. And he pretty much dared his dad to say anything about that necklace. Mm -hmm. Because had his daddy would have said something, that would have been the last time his daddy would have uh, breathed. He was trying to, he was giving his daddy, he was giving himself a reason. It was like, you know what? I wish a motherfucker would. (laughs) Yep. It was like, I wish a motherfucker would moment. But in that particular space, and it was even interesting for Hiram because as he was doing that snooping around, he always felt bad about it. He always felt like that was more like Maynard than him to feel entitled to go through someone else's things. But once he found that, it opened up his memory of everything. Once he had some enlightenment. I mean, once he came to understanding that this cracker shouldn't have none of this shit no way, so I shouldn't feel bad about looking at it. That's when he was able to move forward on it, you know. Because the shame came from he was still believing that they were righteous people. And it was some righteousness around not looking through somebody's stuff. But when he said, nah, man, fuck this. Everything y'all got, y'all stole from people. You don't own none of this shit. I'm looking at it. I don't know if we touched on the change that came about between Hiram and Sophia once she came back and how interesting it was when he came back and saw that she had had a child and the way he was looking at that child. And Sophia said, I see how you looking at, I see how you looking at that, the baby. It's not yours. And I was going, did I miss something? Well, she was dropping little breadcrumbs before they, they ran off together. Cause she was saying that, Oh, what if I bring, uh, I, the thought of me bringing somebody into slavery as, she as a was saying girl. she didn't want that she right. was saying that's why she was running but she i think she knew that she was pregnant probably but she you know there know was no was reason pregnant. to believe any of that she that was making end. sure that he understood why she could not be a slave anymore and how desperate she was to get out of there and it actually put a lot of fire under Hiram to be like i want to get you out of here so he wanted to be the hero. He wanted to save Sophia. And then when they got captured, it went way south. And the fact that Corinne never told him that she was looking out for her was really crappy on Corinne's part. But, you know, Corinne had her ways of doing things. But she also came through and when she saw him when he came back she had that same personality with him she talked to him in the same way and then the way that they developed this new relationship just as friends and you know i just watched how they developed and how they would just sit and talk and how they grew together and it got to the point where even though sophia had said so many things to me before that made me say what is wrong with her When Hiram actually came to her and said, I am going to get you and Fina out of here. And she said, I am not leaving without you. To back up, though, before they they ran, they were showing their relationship developing early on. And one of the things that I noticed that Sophia did with Hiram from the beginning, she was very honest with him. 
She, right. But, she was and, very but she put the brakes on it. She was like, look, I don't know what you're looking for, and maybe I can give it to you, but I'm not making you any promises. Look, I'm trying to get away from this one man. I'm not trying to trade one man for another because you ain't going to be my master. When I get to where I'm going, we might be together. We might not. She was very clear with him. And I she used to have another man, man that I was very into. What's his name? Mercury? She had a husband. Yeah, a mm-hmm. husband named Mercury who could dance. And she said, can you dance? Mm-hmm. And she was very honest. Like, you know, this dude can mm-hmm. move. And he was like, oh, I'll probably inherit that from my daddy. Hiram and she said, well, you know what? It don't hurt to try. Right. You so, gonna dance with me. But she was very limiting with him in the beginning. And another thing, when you talk about when they got captured, when they got captured, did you recognize how... Even in that stressful moment, they made it their way together and they had like a little small intimate moment together when they were in uh, captivity. So mm-hmm. because they, he was they trying had a longing to protect, for each other. he was that trying was to protect head, her. Though, that was he awesome. had more he of a longing for her than for that she did for him. What'd you say, Harvey? That was in his head. He was imagining that. Like she didn't, she won't, she, nah, she, she was on a whole nother agenda, man. I think that was. I think that was interesting to me how, like, we're saying it's a slave narrative, and we said it has so many different layers to it. So the relationships between men and women, you know, you see the relationships on the plantation, and people get sold, and you see these efforts of people trying to reconnect with people who were sold. Then you see these other hidden relationships. You got conversations about free love and and you got black women saying, I ain't with that free love shit. Like, all this is in that book. And so when you when you start off with Hiram and Sophia at the beginning, and Hiram's like the simp running behind Sophia, he's believing that that's his woman. And he's coming back. And Sophia's like, yeah, but nah, I never was your woman. No man is going to own me. You can be with me, but you can't have me. The only way for you to be with me is to know that you can't have me. That is deep as hell because Simp at, at, is so pejorative to describe Hiram and and <laughs> Sophia's relationship, though. Why he not? Simping. He was well simping, in the beginning. Bro. He was kind of over his head, and Fina even knew that he was over his head into something that was not necessarily so. But he, he was, he was Sophia at the time that. found a way. He was not going to win with that. Because Athena even checked him when he came back. He's like, Hiram, why you couldn't have got a better woman? That girl lazy. She ain't shit. Well, that was on a fake. <laughs> that was on a, that was, that was afterwards. <laughs> and that was, that was because she was pretending to be sick. But Athena wasn't feeling her. Like, Athena behind clothes. Athena had so much stuff built. that She had a weird relationship with Hiram. It's like. Athena wasn't like- feeling her at first, but later Athena gave them her blessing and yeah, she was very yeah, happy yeah. for them. She was yeah. happy. She told Hiram she was happy for them. Yeah. Because Athena recognized that they all were holding some type of baggage. And I think that bonded them all together. With that being said, um, Donovan, if you had to rate this book one through 10, what would you give it? Ooh, I don't know if I can give a fair assessment. I'll give it an eight right now, though. An eight. So far, so good. I, I like his um. What's the word I would use? Not alliteration. I like his um. He's very descriptive. Like I, I can see how it could get like uh fatiguing sometimes, but like I don't know. I I think the way kind of 
Tanahasi. Tanahasi writes things as kind of uh, it's very illustrative, but I haven't finished the book, so that could okay. change. How far did you make it? The beginning of part two. Okay, I to me it was hard for me to follow at first because it moves. It moves here, then it jumps here, then it jumps here, then it jumps there. And you mm-hmm. have to really be engaged to to kind of catch up what's going on. So I was reading the book and I was like, damn, am I slow? I mean, like, is Maybe. it just me? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. So what you think? Rate, rate the book one through 10 and give me your overall review on it. I am going to give it an eight simply because... I may have liked it more if I hadn't read it right after The Sweetness of Water because I was in slavery overload. But I really enjoyed, as I stated before, that it was historical fiction. And I also enjoyed the way that the characters were developed and how I can see the characters of yesteryear and just place them into now and still have some of the same symbolic Things happening. Harvey, you know what? I'm going to let you go last because you picked the book. Um, If I had to rate this book one through 10, I'm going to get this book a seven because it's Ta-Nehisi Coates. Like I said, it um, it's a good story. It's not a great story. The details are better than the story and the the structure of the book. It's not a, like a sit down and just read and go through it. And I was so ready to get over this book. I was so ready for this book to be done. Um, it, yeah, it's just it just wasn't my style. It's 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 not my thing. I don't think I tried to read Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, I tried to read his comic book, Black Panther. I didn't like that neither. I did like his article on the first white president, though. I did like that article. But um, so with that being said, like I said, I give it a seven, you know. Um, yeah, I think this gonna be my last Tanahasi Coach book. I didn't like five years we were in power neither. I mean, eight years we were in power. I, you know, that was like that was an anthology of essays. Yeah. Harvey. What's your thoughts? Hey, I'm I'm gonna give it. A, 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 <laughs> I'm gonna give it a ten, man. I loved it. And my bad, Nathan. I started reading this before I started reading Sweetness of Water, and I was mad as hell. I had to stop to deal with that shit. Yup, my bad, Nathan. <laughs> this is just a better book for the time period. If I'm gonna read historical fiction. This book touched on so many different levels, so many different um, character developments, so many backstories. It was a little laughter here and there. Characters, I mean, I just loved it. I, I think this is made for the screen. I want to see a movie made off of this. It's a 10 in my world, and I thought Nathan's book was cool. I hate to make a comparison because it's not about that. But um, nah, if I'm going to read a slave, a, a, a historical fiction, as Teresa says, I think it's good, man. I love it. Yeah. 
start doing verses. Bring bookshelf verses. Thank you for tuning in to the Bruz Bookshelf. Remember, click subscribe, share with your friends, and leave us a five-star rating. Join us on the next Bruz Bookshelf as we cover Maybe You Never Cry Again by Bernie Mac.